Okay. Well, it's exciting, isn't it? All this stuff going on. I love it. Um, and I hear that the, uh, that the football team did pretty well yesterday. Anybody? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, uh, I went into a place and I thought everybody had gone completely stark raving mad. I, I was just having a coffee, you know, doing some preparation and somebody just went in and went, Wah! and I said, excuse me? <laughs> uh, they expected an I.O. back or something. I don't know what it was, but um, I'm getting into it. I'm, I'm starting to get there. You know, I, I asked them who they were playing and they told me Michigan and there was a certain hatred in their eyes. I don't quite understand <laughs> all of that, but uh, they, there was words like shellacking used and, you know, all of that. So if you're a Michigan person, I guess it wasn't a great day yesterday for you. Is there anybody here in that dubious state? Oh my goodness, God bless you. Yeah. I'm, a, I'm an English soccer person and uh, I know the pain of being a fan. It's an awful thing. Today we're going to do something a little different as we continue to look at this really quite remarkable chapter in Luke. We've now been in chapter eight, I think for four weeks. We could have actually extended our time in this chapter, but we do need to finish this series in Luke and Acts before the Lord returns. And he told me it wasn't gonna be next year, so I don't know whether that's true or not. But, but um, we're, going to, uh, we're going to continue uh, looking at Acts chapter eight and verse 40 and following. But what I'm going to do this week is I'm going to read just a few verses and then make a few expository comments. And then by the time we get to the end of the passage, I'm going to offer you two practical ways in which you can apply what appears to be one of the principal themes in what it is that the Holy Spirit is seeking to highlight from this passage. Some practical ways in which we can apply them. And at the end of the sermon, of course, we'll move into a time of communion. And then after that, we'll be very excited to pray for any here who would like prayer for sickness, for struggle, for difficulties, anxieties that you, that you wrestle with in your life. And so be ready for that as well. Let's look at Luke chapter 8 and verse 40. Now, when Jesus returned, a crowd welcomed him, for they were all expecting him. Now, it's an interesting thing that this first verse here in some ways sets the tenor and the tone for what it is that we will read through the rest of this passage. In the rest of this passage, we have two remarkable healings. Healings so remarkable that they're mentioned in other gospels as well. Healings that are so particular that we need to pause a little while to, as it were, extract a greater meaning from them. But undergirding, undergirding the tenor and the tone of these stories is this idea of expectation. Here we are, we're four weeks from Christmas. This is the first Sunday in Advent. Not something that we make a particularly big deal of here at Apex. We don't light candles and all of that kind of thing. But in just about every other church, 
that you'll encounter, you'll see some reference to the beginning of Advent. And Advent is this time of preparation for Christmas when we think about expectation. We think about being prepared and ready for the arrival, the first arrival of the Son of God incarnate being made human here among us. And in that expectation, we allow our hearts to be stirred with the expectation of the soon return of Christ when he will, as it were, complete the process of human history. Expectation is enormously important to an understanding of the Bible. And generally, it's covered under the theological topic of hope. But expectation is something that goes way beyond our biblical study, way beyond our understanding and analysis of the text. Expectation will change the way that you live. I wonder what you expect of tomorrow. I wonder what you expect of your gatherings with your family in these coming weeks. I wonder what you expect of next year. I wonder what you expect of your life. I wonder what you expect of that education for which you are struggling to complete and pay. Expectation is enormously important. And the way in which we embrace expectation changes our posture, not only toward the future, but our posture toward life in general. These folks here had an expectation that Jesus was going to come home and because he was going to come home, he was probably going to do something amazing. And so their expectation was matched with another word, with, a, with another reality, with, a, with another attitude. Their expectation was, as it were, undergirded with a welcome. A crowd welcomed him for they were all expecting him. Then a man named Jairus, or Jairus, a ruler of the synagogue, came and fell at Jesus' feet, pleading with him to come to his house because his daughter, a girl of about 12, was dying. The crowd were expecting Jesus. They welcomed him. They'd seen him do remarkable things in their midst. But here in the crowd was a person that was differentiated from the majority. Differentiated by the level of desperation that he felt. Differentiated by the level of need that was in his life. But there was still expectation. The expectation was such that he went to Jesus in his desperation, a desperation that was somehow made palatable, made bearable by the expectation that perhaps Jesus could do something. But here we have something fascinating 
a bad expectation. The Bible says that faith is the substance of what is hoped for. If you put that into contemporary language, you would probably say this, that faith is the concrete expression of hope. Faith is something that you do. It's something that you see. It's something that you can actually observe in a person's life. Hope, you may not be able to observe it. You may be able to observe it over a period of time because they have a a hopeful attitude. They have a, a way of expecting good things from their life. But faith But faith is always something that you see. It's the concrete expression of hope. Here, Jairus had a daughter that was dying. Any parent that's been in that that situation knows how desperate that feels. And in that desperation, Jairus, different from the crowd, both in his status, he was the leader of the synagogue, and in his desperation, his child was dying, Jairus goes to Jesus with expectation and in his expectation expresses his expectation in action because he says in faith, please come. So what do you expect God to do? What do you expect God to be about in your life? And how far does expectation get made manifest in action that would be called faith? Is your expectation of what God would do in your life now observable as action? Do you have Do you have a disposition towards the future that means that when you speak of the future, you speak with with genuine faith? When you speak of your children, of your spouse, of your friends, you speak in a way that gives all of the indications that you not only expect good things for yourself, but you expect good things for them. Because this is what the scriptures say, all things, all things are being managed by God so that good comes out of them for those who believe in him. But where does our life manifest the faith in that truth? In our businesses, in our workplace, in the struggles that we find in our relationships, are we expecting something good to come out of even the most difficult of experiences. And if we're expecting it, is the expectation made manifest in activity that other people can see that looks like faith? Or do we have that kind of look about us that we're expecting the other shoe to drop? Do we have that attitude about us that when someone shares something with us, we're not able to offer anything other 
than a pessimistic view of the future. Of course, the world is fallen. Of course, people will continue to struggle. But when people encounter you, does an expectation of God working together in all of the circumstances of the lives of those who love him indicate that you have faith that good things will happen for you and for others. Jairus believed that good things could happen if he went to Jesus in faith. It was more than expectation. He did something. And he came to Jesus and he knelt at the feet of Jesus and good things began to happen because his expectation became action, because his hope became faith. As Jesus was on his way, the crowds almost crushed him. Verse 43, and a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years, but no one could heal her. She came up behind him and touched the edge of his cloak and immediately her bleeding stopped. This woman was hemorrhaging. It was probably some terrible continuation of a menstrual cycle of some kind. What that meant for her within her social setting was that she was ostracized, she was isolated, she was marginalized because if she came into contact with anyone, male or female, young or old, they would be unclean for a week. And so she was constantly alone. One of the other gospel writers, Mark, tells us that she'd spent all of her money, everything that she had, on doctors that could not help her. And so her desperation was compounded by her poverty. Now she knew that if she touched Jesus skin to skin, Jesus would be unclean for a week. But she decided that it was worth the risk. It was worth the further ostracization. It was worth the further persecution of the crowds. And so she probably crept amongst the people, crawling on her hands and knees, knowing that if she just touched the corner of his robe, it would be enough. Why was that? Well, perhaps she had heard the stories that are related just a couple of chapters before this, when Jesus is there in the Capernaum region and power is coming from him and healing everyone. And so maybe she thinks, well, I just need to get close enough to sense the power coming from him and I'll be healed. Now her expectation, of course, is empowered by this sense of desperation like Jairus, and her expectation has become action. So her hope has become faith because she reaches out to touch Jesus. It's an amazing thing to me how many Christians I meet 
who are functional agnostics when it comes to the power of God. It's a shocking truth that so many of us with our needs, with our struggles, with our daily wrestling, never think to reach out to touch just the hem of his garment. We think that what we have to do is to somehow fix the situation ourselves, somehow come to a place of working out what it is that needs to be done ourselves. How foolish it is when we, I do it myself, when we assume that we are the centre of our world. And so therefore, if anything is going to get done, it's us that's got to achieve it. And so we struggle and we continue and the desperation grows. But the desperation doesn't seem to create expectation. And if there's no expectation, it's very difficult for the expectation to become action. You see, because if you don't have hope, it's very difficult to have faith. Why is that? Because faith is what? The substance of what is is what is hoped for. So if faith is the substance of what is hoped for, then Christians should be the most hopeful people on the planet. They should be the most expectant people in the world. And yet, that's not always the case. And you see it by the way that we attempt to manage, to fix, and to control our lives and the lives of others. Here is a woman brought to the place of desperation, like the man who has fallen at the feet of Jesus. Their desperation has got them to the place where somehow nothing else is available except a hope in Jesus. What do you hope for? What do you expect? And with the expectation, are you allowing God to take the expectation to a place of action? Are you allowing God to, to take the hope and create the substance of hope, which is faith? Let's continue because it's quite interesting, this whole subject of expectation, because quite clearly Jesus did not expect what it was that just happened. Verse 45, who touched me, Jesus asked. When they all denied it, Peter said, Master, the people are crowding and pressing against you. But Jesus said, someone touched me. I know that power has gone out from me. Someone touched me, I know, because power has gone out from me. Now how many people in the room who've ever considered the power of God 
have always assumed, like me, that power is something that is the willful activity of God. How many people? Maybe you don't understand the question. (laughs) How many of us in the room think that the power of God is something that God does? Yeah? Here in this passage, it's not what Jesus does at all. Did you notice that? Power is not an expression of God's will so much as an attribute of his presence. Oh, wait a minute. Let's have a little think about this. Power is the attribute of God's presence in Jesus. Jesus is just walking through the crowd. Jesus, full of the presence of God, is walking through the crowd and there are desperate people in the crowd. And the desperation and the presence of God makes the connection and power is released. Now this changes everything. Because if what Jesus says here is true, and obviously it is, it simply means this, that being in the presence of God is enough. Being in the presence of God is enough because power is an attribute of his presence. What do you need God to do in your life? Do you need him to improve your finances? Do you need God to change some people around you? Generally, when you start praying for that, God changes you. (laughs) Do you need God to give you greater opportunities? Do you need God to change something about you physically because you're needing healing? What is it that you need in your life? I'm not talking about a wish list, you know, whether you're on the naughty or nice list or all of that. I'm I'm not talking about all of that. I'm talking about the things that you really need. And you really need God's power to deliver it. Say, say you're an addict. Let's just say that you're an addict. You're addicted to something. And you know that you tried every possible way to break the addiction. And so now what you need is the power of God. Now, the most successful program for the restoration of heroin addicts in Hong Kong, which was populated with a huge number of heroin addicts for many, many years. The most successful program in a state that is a self-confessed atheistic state is run by a lady called Jackie Pullinger. 
And what Jackie Pullinger does is she creates a space where heroin addicts can come into the manifest, expressed presence of God in a worshipping community where the presence in the believer and the presence of God in the worship is considered to be enough. And that, as the backbone of their program, is the thing that's endorsed by the Chinese government. Because it works. Because what those people need is power. Power to change. Power that they don't have in themselves. Power that only God has available. But where does power come from? It comes from God. And are we therefore going to try to twist his arm? Say, come on God, do something powerful. It's quite clear from this text. And if you follow on through the rest of this study in Luke and Acts, you'll discover again and again that power is an attribute of God's presence. And so we need to find ways, ways that the scriptures tell us that we will always find his presence. Here's one. When two or three gather in my name, I will be among you, says Jesus. So don't do it by yourself. Do you need power? Well, don't do it by yourself. Do you need power to break through, to transform, to change? Well, gather a few believers. Gather in his name. Gather to honour who he is. Gather to identify with his name, with his purposes, with his goodness, with his gospel. And there you'll find power. But here's the thing. There were lots of people in that crowd who never felt the power because they had no expectation. And because they had no expectation, there was no evidence of the power because the connection was faith. How do I know that? Verse 48, daughter, Your faith has healed you. Go in peace. Your faith has healed you. Go in peace. What does Jesus mean then? Did she she sign some kind of confession? Did she read one of the creeds? Did she pray the prayer? As far as I can tell, none of those things happened. Did she have a right understanding of the doctrines of the incarnation of the Son of God? Did she know that she was encountering the second person of the Trinity? No. She had an expectation that God could heal her through Jesus. And so she did something. And in doing something, expressed a hope that had become a faith. And in that faith, 
she connected with power that changed her. Isn't that amazing? Is anybody with this? Do you see what it is that Jesus is offering here? That where he's present, there is power. And if we will only allow our expectation to be just enough to say that God could do this, and if in that expectation we're prepared to put ourselves in the position where that expectation becomes action, where hope becomes faith, then faith will connect with God and power will be released. This is not me, this is what Jesus says. Power has gone out from me. Just flip the coin for a moment. Say, say you'd like to have more power when you're praying for the sick, when you're praying for your children, when you're praying for your business. What, what, what do you think you'd like to do? How would you do that? Well, you could do the veins on your neck thing that they do on TV. Talked about that before, haven't we? Yay! You could walk around a bit and shout at the ceiling. Hey! Yeah? We could try that. And you know, who knows? Something might happen. Burst a blood vessel or something, I don't know. (laughs) Or, (laughs) or cultivate the presence of God. Because power is an attribute of his presence. And if you know Jesus, he lives within you. So why wouldn't you cultivate? Why wouldn't you welcome? Why wouldn't you host his presence within you? Why wouldn't you make him the special guest every day? Why wouldn't you say every day, Jesus, I'm delighted that you're present within me. Thank you that you'll never leave me nor forsake me. And thank you that with your presence, you bring everything with you, including all your power. The power that flung the galaxies into space. The power that raised the dead. The power that changes lives forever. That power, Lord Jesus, you brought with you when you entered my life. And so, Lord, show your power through me today. Wouldn't that be awesome? The same power that raised Jesus from the dead, says Paul in Ephesians, lives in you. It seems to be simply a matter of expectation and action. It simply seems to be a matter of hope and faith. It certainly seems to be the case with these folks here who have such a remarkable testimony of what Jesus did. Verse 49, while Jesus was still speaking, someone came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue ruler, your daughter is dead. He said, 
Don't bother the teacher anymore. You see, the man that came to Jairus had an expectation that maybe Jesus could heal, but not raise from the dead. His expectation had limits. His expectation had boundaries. His expectation defined the way that he acted. And so his action followed his expectation and he said, the story's over. Jesus, on the other hand, had a different expectation. He had already seen people raised from the dead. A young man, uh, just in one of the villages up the road in a, in a village called Nain. He'd been raised from the dead. Jesus knew that the power that was necessary to heal the woman who touched the hem of his garment was the same power that was needed to raise the little girl. There wasn't any more power needed. The same power that heals your cold or your headache is the same power that raises people from the dead. Did you know that? It's not a different power. It's the same power. And there are people here who have testimonies of various different things. And you know, it's funny, people say, well, it's only a cold. <laughs> I only got healed of a cold. Well, you know, I had some, some neuropathy in my leg and I'm, somebody knows, they, they told me this. So neuropathy, and I'm thinking, wow. Are you kidding me? It's the same power. Turn to your neighbor and say, it's the same power. Go on. It's the same power. It's not a different power. Jesus knew this. Verse 50, hearing this, Jesus said to Jairus, don't be afraid. What will rob your expectation? And here, of course, we connect to last week, don't we, and the message about fear. What will rob you of your expectation? And if your expectation is robbed, that will, that will remove from you the possibility of faith in a particular circumstance is fear. Don't be afraid, says Jesus. Allow your expectation to continue. And in your expectation, continue to act on that expectation and believe when he arrived at the house of Jairus, he did not let anyone go with him except Peter, John and James and the child's father and mother. Meanwhile, all the people were wailing and mourning for her. Stop wailing, Jesus said. She's not dead but asleep. Now, here's the thing. Expectation can be caught Expectation can be caught. In fact, it's far more caught than taught. But a lack of expectation can be caught as well. And Jesus took with him his trusted, closest colleagues, the, the core of his team. And he took them with him into that room to show them 
what it was that God's power could do. And he took Jairus and his wife with him. But the people who didn't expect anything, he kept separate. How much do you want God to work in your life? Well, ask the Lord to help you with the fear that robs you of your expectation. How much do you want God to move through you? Well, ask God to increase that sense of expectation in your life, an expectation that can become action, a hope that becomes faith. Because without it, Jesus is unable to work. Now, how much faith do we need? Well, you don't need a lot. You just need a tiny amount. Think of the people in this story. They didn't know anything like as much about Jesus as you do. I mean, they they didn't know anything in comparison. And yet, their tiny knowledge, their, their almost insignificant amounts of understanding were enough to form the seed of faith, the mustard seed of faith that could move mountains. And so this is not something for the spiritually mature. This is not something for the spiritual athletes. This is not something for those who are great in faith. This is something for everyone, young and old. This is simply, this is simply a question of whether we're prepared to allow God to cultivate our attitude so that it becomes an attitude of expectation. Well, we know what happens, of course. In verse 54, Jesus took the little girl by the hand and said, my child, get up. Her her spirit returned and she stood up. Then Jesus told them to give her something to eat and to stop screaming. No, he doesn't say that. But, but I guess that that was one of the other things he said too. I mean, can you imagine? Amazing. So here's two practical things. How do we get hold of this thing about expectation? Seems to be really important, doesn't it? Yeah? And here we are, we live in a city that's gone through desperate decline We live in a state where maybe we're well known for being solid, not necessarily optimistic individuals. And so the the culture and the atmosphere doesn't particularly help us. How do we cultivate expectation? Well, there's a question you can go home and ask your friends. No, I'll tell you right now. It's all right. This is how you you cultivate expectation. Be thankful. Be thankful. In the next chapter, 
you'll see Jesus being thankful on several occasions. And actually, if you look through the Gospels, you'll notice that Jesus is a thankful person. And then if you read on into the New Testament, you'll find that being thankful is one of the principal expressions of being a Christian. You see, expectation of the future is based on experience in the past. And all of us have bad experiences. And your mind is finite. And so you will fill your mind with the things that are most familiar to you. And if the things that are most familiar to you are the hard things that you've experienced, the difficult things, the bitter things that you've, that you've gone through in the past, it will rob you of all expectation. What we have to do is we look back and we ask ourselves this simple question, what has God done? And then be thankful. And this is what begins to happen. It's like a little water wheel begins to turn in your heart. And your thanksgivings of the past become expectations for the future. I was lying in a bush hospital in Nigeria. The doctors were desperately afraid that I was going to go into a catatonic state. My temperature was racing. They didn't know what I'd been affected with. I was there on a mission trip and I was in terrible danger. The day before, I'd said to God, as I looked at the evidence of revival all around me in Nigeria, I'd said to God, God, I can see that all of these people who are receiving revival are so thankful. Lord, teach me to be thankful. Little did I know. I'm lying in bed, it's two o'clock in the morning. The nurse comes in and says, can I pray for you? And I say, please, please, anything. And as she prays for me, the Lord says, and now I'm going to teach you how to be thankful. You cynical what's it. <laughs> he didn't say that, but that's what I felt like. You see, because I was raised in the north of England. I'm a good working class lad. I don't expect anything from life other than what it is that I've made from my life. I don't expect any handouts from anybody. I don't look for any praise or affirmation. I've been raised in a particular way and I'm never thankful. Why would I be thankful? I achieved all of it myself. And so God says, now I'm going to teach you how to be thankful. And I said, for what? I'm dying. You've got to be honest with God, haven't you, when you're having a conversation with him. I said, for what? Look at me. 
My wife's back home with the three kids. She doesn't know where I am. People haven't invented cell phones yet. And even if they did, they wouldn't work here. For what? And so God had to prompt me. Start with the nurse. Oh yeah, okay. Thank you for the nurse. Now the bed. Well, the bed was a child's bed. Because they were so afraid that whatever it was I had, other people would catch. They put me in a nurse's station, but the only bed that they could get in there was a child's bed. And so it was like, I don't know, five foot eight long. And I went, thanks for the bed. <laughs> now the mosquito net. Yeah, thank you for the mosquito net. And he had to prompt me. And for like 30 minutes, it was a really, really hard thing. In the middle of the night, the doctor came back and took my vitals. He said, Pastor, what, what's happening? I said, don't stop me now. I'm being thankful. <laughs> he said, well, keep doing it, whatever it is. I said, I know. I can feel the life coming back to me. I could feel the transformation in my body. I walked out of that hospital. It was such a miracle to the medical staff that they lined the corridor and applauded God as I left. They literally had no experience of anybody coming in in that condition and walking out the next morning. And it was simply on the basis of thanksgiving. Do you want to expect more? Be thankful. Be thankful. Now you say this in other countries and they go, yeah, but you know, this is America. We have a whole thing called Thanksgiving. <laughs> it may well be that that little cornerstone in our culture is one of the main reasons why we as a nation are so great. Because we expect good things. Because we're thankful for the things that have happened. Who knows? We'll find out in heaven. Be thankful. Secondly, if you want your expectation to become faith, then copy someone who does exactly that. Just copy them. The Bible calls it imitation and it's the basis of discipleship. Now, in Acts chapter nine, when we get there, you'll, you'll see it. In Acts chapter nine, Peter, one of the three that was taken with Jesus into the room with the little girl, Peter is with a lady that's just died. It's in a, it's in a town called Joppa, near a place called Lydda. And uh, the disciples there say, you need to come and, and pray for this woman, she's dead. And Peter thinks, okay. So he, he goes along. And this is what Peter does. He gets rid of all of the mourning people and says, I don't need you here. You need to be out of here. And then he gets down and he kneels and prays. Now, little girl in Aramaic, this is, you'll find this in Mark's gospel, chapter five. In Aramaic is Talitha. Say Talitha. And little deer 
in Greek is Tabitha. Say Tabitha. Now the lady's name is Tabitha and the little girl was addressed as little girl, Talitha. And the word for get up is kum. And so Jesus says to the little girl, Talitha kum. Peter, when he's with a woman in a room that's dead, thinks, wow, how lucky am I? I only have to change one letter and I can say exactly the same thing that Jesus did. And he says, Tabitha kum. And she gets up. The thing about faith is that faith is the concrete expression of expectation. And because it's concrete, you can see it. And because you can see it, you can imitate it. Paul says, imitate my faith. Look at the people around you. Who are the people with faith? Who are the people who approach life full of faith? Imitate them. Look at what they do. Look at how they act. Look at how they posture themselves towards the world. Imitate them. So, how do you grow in expectation? Be How do you grow in faith? By imitating people of... There it is. It's the best I can do. I hope it helps. Hope will become faith if we allow that expectation built on thanksgiving of what God has done in the past if that expectation is allowed to become concrete action that expresses what we expect to happen. God will do it. And if we cultivate his presence, all the power that we need for God to do it will be available. Amen? Amen. Amen.